This episode of the Artsy Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Artists, photographers, and designers of all kinds have used Squarespace to showcase their works, and you can do it too. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch your site and show your work to the world, use the offer code ARTSY to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's offer code ARTSY, A-R-T-S-Y. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Deputy Editor Scott Indrasek. Hello, Isaac. Hello. And Features Producer Molly Gottschalk. Hey, Isaac. So today we're going to be talking about photojournalism. We're going to be talking a little bit about some of its most famous examples from history and also talking about how images can define a movement and create or not create social change. So, Molly, you wrote about one of the most iconic images in photojournalism uh, of all time, uh, Dorothea Lange's Migrant Mother. I think everyone's familiar with with that image. But there's so much people don't know about it in terms of the history, Lange's own framing of the shot. And people also don't know that it almost didn't even get taken. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Um, so for a little bit of backstory, during the Depression, the federal government hired photographers to document the lives of displaced families and migrant workers to encourage um a humanitarian response from the public. So Dorothea Lang was one of these photographers, and she'd been working for um, what was called the Resettlement Administration at the time. Now we know it as the Farm Security Administration. Um, but she'd been working on a one-month assignment by herself in the field, documenting the lives of farm workers in uh, California. And she just wrapped the project and was driving home to see her family in San Francisco. So she's alone on the highway, exhausted after a um, you know a month on the job and sees a sign for a handwritten sign for a pea pickers camp. So she keeps driving. Um, 20 miles later, she's totally just gripped by you know, photographer's compulsion, knows that there's some reason she needs to go back, turns her car so around. Towards the pea pickers camp. Back towards the pea pickers camp, turns her car around um, and arrives for what would you know, arguably be the most uh, iconic shot of her career. And there, there she finds the person who came to be known as, as my grandmother. So she arrives at the camp and she finds this mother who's living there with her seven children in a lean-to tent. And um, there are a lot of different accounts of this story, but the one that uh, Dorothea has left in her notes describes her just going directly to this mother who appears to be starving. Um, her notes say that, that the kids were living off of frozen vegetables and... Um, well, I, I guess I didn't mention that uh, there wasn't any work here for the pea pickers. All the crops had frozen. So she reports that the children had um, been living off of the frozen vegetables, had been uh, killing birds for food, and the family had just sold the tires of their car to buy food. So she took uh, six photographs. That one image that we now know as Migrant Mother has really become this defining image of the Depression. The day after she took the picture, she gave it to a San Francisco newspaper, which published the image in an article meant to raise awareness for the need for funds for these migrant workers. And from there, it really uh, circled the globe as this face of the Depression. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about this photo in the context of a discussion on photojournalism, but it's interesting to me because so much about it doesn't resemble photo 
journalism. I mean, Dorothea Lange was working for the federal government, right? Uh, the FSA. She quote unquote manipulated the the photo a little. Like she she staged it in in some way, shape, and form to 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 get a result out of it, which a journalist would never do today. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, a, a lot of the things that have been written about this image, different accounts uh, describe her sort of moving heaps of dirty clothes out of the shot or framing very tightly on what is a rather large family to show just the two children. So some say that would um, play better to the conservative American audience that these images were intended to influence, uh, people they wanted to to support these families. Clearly, it's a composed photograph. The two children's faces are turned into her. She's looking away. It's it's definitely a, a posed image in that way. It's also worth noting that before she was working for the administration, Dorothea Lange had worked for two decades as a portrait photographer in San Francisco. So she's a very skilled photographer in that sense. What was the effect of this photograph? Well, immediately, the federal government responded by sending, I believe it was 20,000 pounds of food to the camp, to that particular pea pickers camp. Um, So you had an immediate financial response, but I think even more so, the image helped give a face to these families. I mean, you have you have numbers, statistics that you read in newspapers, but as we've seen with so many images that have come to really define a, a movement or mobilize communities, it's humanizing the subjects. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, though, because you have Lang humanizing this subject, creating pity or, or a, a range of feelings for this mother. But in order to do that, she's had to edit out the truth. You know, like there are probably swaths of the country that if they had seen this photo and her with seven children would have been like, why did she have seven children? So it's interesting the way in which this feeling is kind of conjured. And, you know, why, why couldn't people feel bad for her or want to care for her if she had seven children? Why did it have to be two or three or, or this, you know, quasi-nuclear family that maybe resembled theirs. Uh, it, it's, it's an interesting way in which the effects can kind of clash with the, the idea that photojournalism is truth-telling. Yeah, I'd be curious to know, too, how much context was given when the photos were kind of disseminated. You know, did, did the American public, was it accompanied by a text that kind of said, this is who we're looking at, and this is, you know, or was it pretty much, was the image living on its own as just a sort of icon of... Um, I, I definitely don't think they had the full context. Um, I don't know exactly what information was shared in those articles, but what I do know is there's a lot of information that was later learned about the subject. Uh, I think it was like 40 years later. Um, she was, was Cherokee. You know, this idea that, um, as you said, Isaac, that she was part of this nuclear family um, her first husband had died of tuberculosis, I think a few years prior. She was either remarried or, or uh, with a second companion. You know, she definitely didn't fit this idea of the nuclear family that appealed to white conservative uh, families that they yeah. were trying to get to give charitable right. support. It is interesting because this photo raises what I think is like a persistent issue with photojournalism or, or with any kind of photography which is the idea that for something to have a political impact or effect, someone has to imagine themselves as the subject of the photograph and like that tragedy could happen to me, therefore we should intervene or stop or help or do something rather than 
this person isn't me, uh, they're different than me, they're not me, that probably couldn't be me for a whole variety of reasons, but I still feel it is crucial to help. And that's a, such a that's such a tricky distinction that I don't think is often made. So I think it's always important to kind of think about why an image is having an impact, why another image isn't, why one image makes you feel something that spurs you to action while another makes you feel something that you can kind of dismiss. I think what's interesting there too is is how unplanned it is. You know, you like you were saying, Lang had pretty much finished up her project and was ready to like just you know go home, call it quits. And the image that ends up being the one that everyone remembers is this sort of after the fact, for whatever for whatever reason she was drawn to take it. Um, I was speaking to an, another photojournalist, uh, Steve Shapiro, who has kind of made works through the '50s up until now, kind of shot everything from the civil rights movement to Martin Luther King during the Selma march. And then sort of Andy Warhol in the factory and Muhammad Ali, I think, all, all, a very wide range of, of people. And he was looking back on a photo he had taken during the Selma march of a young marcher who had kind of covered his face in flour and then written the word vote across his forehead. Mm-hmm. And it's become a very iconic image. And he, in a very charming way, kind of seemed, I mean, he, he thought it was a great picture, but he kind of seemed not to know why that image had just stuck with people so strongly. And, and he was kind of just saying through repetition sometimes, it's it's what makes an image kind of go down in history. But there's all these other factors that, you know, you couldn't just say, well, it's X, Y, and Z, and this is a classic photo. And he was talking about some other pictures he's taken throughout his career that he almost seemed like he didn't think were so great, but that had everyone else seemed to think were so great. And had, you know, that's kind of what people remember him for. Um, so it, there's a certain interesting randomness, I think, with what, comes to define different moments. Totally. But I think that image in particular, the young boy, his eyes are so piercing. You know, you feel like... You mean, is that you're talking about the, the vote the vote image? The vote image. Um, you know, you, you really connect to the subject. And I think that goes back to what Isaac was saying about um, this idea that you have to share similarities with a subject to really empathize with them or want to help them. And I think that's not necessarily true in all these cases. I think some of the strongest examples are ones where you don't have anything to do with the subject, but because they're positioned in a way that makes you feel like this is this like fellow human being who is, you know, just one person met with this, you know, opposing force, like you can map that situation into something relevant in your own life. And I think it does help you sort of understand what it could feel like to be this this person who's um, going through whatever the particular struggle is. What's an example of, of that kind of photography? I would say um, the very famous image of Tank Man in Tiananmen Square and also um, Mark Rabode's image of the young girl um, holding a chrysanthemum um, to a National Guard at the Pentagon opposing the Vietnam War. Those were images that really people really paid attention to. People don't necessarily have to relate to you know this feeling of physically being tank man during this time, but um, yeah, no, but I guess what I was also trying to say sort of bumblingly before is that migrant mother and tank man also, still accord with a kind of narrative uh, of like, for example, Tank Man, there is in America a long history of like the individual against the repressive regime. So that photo doesn't clash with anything kind of foundational or make you change your assumptions about the way people should oppose a government, for example, peacefully. Uh, that, that That's basically the consensus in the United States 
um, among the political group that like it's the best way to oppose a government is like peaceful demonstration against authoritarianism. That applies right there. The migrant mother also, people think that if, you know, a woman has a lot of children that was seen as that that they weren't a good mother um, and therefore maybe shouldn't deserve uh, support from the government. And that the migrant mother doesn't challenge that foundational assumption. Right. So okay. it's interesting to sort of, I just think it's important to always kind of ask why an image resonates because sometimes I feel like people are like, oh, this image is really powerful, period. And Molly, that's what you're so good at because it's your sort of resident beat here, which is like interrogating why images uh, resonate, which is which is so important in this day and age when we're saturated with images, when photos go viral extremely quickly, when they're not always real. When migrant mother was taken, there were very limited opportunities to see images of these people that you were reading about and these narratives that you were reading about in the news. You have images coming from the government that are shaping your understanding. These people working in the fields don't have iPhones. They're not photographing themselves. You don't have this infinite spread of images of everything that you have access to every day now as part of your um, you know, many times a day, you're hit with this influx of images. We didn't have anything like this during that time. Uh, Molly, yeah, I think that's interesting as far as thinking about um, how the stakes would change if all these communities, as they as they can now, can take their own photographs. There's a piece that we just ran on Artsy about uh, a show from Latoya Ruby Fraser, who's a contemporary artist who's primarily working in photography and uh, photographing her own communities, um, other communities in working class towns, her own family. And one of the things that she told the writer of that piece, Antoine Sargent, that she thinks about is um, something like, what would migrant mother look like if Florence Owens Thompson had taken that picture herself rather than this person from the outside coming in and kind of documenting her life? Um, which is kind of an interesting thought experiment. And I guess it is that is the world we live in, that if you were in a pea-picking farm today and there was terrible conditions or, or whatnot, that you could easily you know, have like an Instagram account just putting that out into the world. But because everyone can do that, does that mean that those images are just, you know, they're not having that, none of them are going to really become iconic in the way that Migrant Mother did. Well, it's interesting because many years later, um, when the when her identity was learned, Florence Thompson said, you know, she was ashamed of those pictures. Um, and while, uh, you know, it is understood that at the time she went along with them, that she understood what the images were for and that they would ultimately help people. I don't think she was knowingly signing on to have this very public, um, her face be so public and and used as this um, defining image of the depression for the rest of her life as this you know face of poverty and and for her children to always have this image that they that represented their mother. Yeah. Well, I mean, there would be no no way to predict that, right? It's not like you're taking the picture and going. This Are you okay with being the defining face of poverty for the next decades? You know, like no, that, that picture could have been another alternate reality, just, you know, kind of stayed in the drawer or, or something. But it is interesting as you see people, you know, we're seeing this happening all over the world, documenting their own communities rather than having, you know, photographers come in from the outside and, and present their own view or, or come in with a um, predefined narrative that they're, you know, that they're there to execute my conversations with the founders of Everyday Africa, the, um, the Instagram account turned uh, global movement. You know, this is something that they've talked about a lot is this idea that news photographers are often coming in and they're, they're they know the story that they want to capture. And now we're seeing this very, very changing view of the world as people start to take pictures of what their communities look like from the insides and tell their own stories. It's interesting, too, because I think there's generally 
uh, more expectation from photojournalism for what it can do and and what it the actual tangible change it will make in the world compared to say a work of art or or a photograph that's presented as art and and it and it's really it's such a difficult and weighty task because you kind of have to ask yourself well how does change even happen i mean i remember speaking to a photographer uh who takes photos of syria this was this was years ago i think it was like 3 years ago um for a piece and he was very critical of the idea that one photo can change the world, but was hopeful that an unending series of photos presented to people who aren't given the chance to look away could potentially shift things slightly uh, for for the better. But it's 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 a really contentious conversation, I think, because you don't want to be too over optimistic about the ability of an image to change the world, but at the same time, you don't want to feel like photography doesn't matter, photojournalism doesn't matter. So it, it's a tough one. Yeah, and, and also if we're still so reliant on images to be the drivers of like these conversations, does that, like what does that do to stories that are really important or tragic, but that don't, like they don't have an easy way to illustrate them in some moving way, mm-hmm. you know, that might be a little bit boring or that you need to dig into the facts. Does that mean that those things won't, you know, get any attention because there's not this easy image to go with them? Yeah, and I guess also, there are certain problems that are so intractable that it's almost wrong or you, you you shouldn't, if you want to solve them, you shouldn't believe that an image can fix them, if that kind of makes sense. Like, like obviously, I was just mentioning the conflict in Syria. Like, that's one where there's been numerous photographs, uh, often of children suffering, but there's been no solution to that conflict simply because it's such a difficult conflict to solve. Well, and there's so many sides involved. That's the thing that like a picture of a a child in Syria is not really telling you anything about the conflict there and how many sides are involved Mm -hmm. and who caused the violence against that child. You know, I mean, you're going to see that and you're going to go, oh yeah, violence against children is bad, obviously, but you're not going to, there's no takeaway from that image that goes, this is, this is because these like, you know, warring factors were involved and the government's doing that, you know, that knowledge is not part of that image. Yeah. I mean, I think the images, they need that context often. And I think that's when they become truly powerful is when you, you know, you know the narrative or you, you've you heard the story. The images are supporting uh, something that you, you somewhat understand and they bring a face to it. The opposite is the images, you know, images used fully out of context can be very misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we've also seen lately is, um, you know, in the sort of era of fake news and fake images, you know, images that are, are presented to mean one thing and, and actually used fully out of context, images from years ago being shown as a, a scene during a hurricane or... Um, yeah, I've written a bit about fake photos and there was one taken, I think, by a Getty photographer by a news agency of Hillary Clinton you know, stumbling down a flight of stairs, but just because she tripped. Um, But it was framed on conservative websites, fake news websites that she was, you know, having some sort of health breakdown and was unfit to lead. So that's an interesting example because obviously no one visiting those websites is going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but still you see how images can become... Uh, reinforcers of narratives that people want to believe in and they don't want to interrogate the image. They don't want to reverse image search. I mean, that's one of the easiest images to figure out 
the real context. You just throw it into Google reverse search and it comes up in the correct context. But people, and I don't think this is a problem, a problem just on the right, like people want things to fit into their narrative. And when it does, why question it? You know, we're running out of time. So before, before we end, Molly, I just wanted to ask you, looking back now, what would you kind of say the defining legacy of the migrant mother photograph is today? Why does it continue to sort of have a resonance? I think the image lives on as this symbol of strength and endurance. Ultimately, um, you have the, what appears to be this, you know, single mother with her two children. She's faced with incredible hardship. She arguably had a difficult day to day supporting her family. Um, and yet she, she appears strong. Um, I think that's part of why this image is so enduring. You know, you, you wanted to root for her. You wanted to believe in her. All right, Scott, uh, where are you going to be drinking white wine this week? I would recommend a show by Laurel Nakadate called The Kingdom, which is at Leslie Tonkinau Gallery. Uh, it's a really moving, kind of heartbreaking, definitely heartbreaking show that deals with her, uh, her mother's recent death, her uh, two-year-old son, a couple of other things going on. There's also a very interesting video of her wearing a Chewbacca mask and dancing around when she's nine months pregnant. That adds a little bit of strange levity to it, but it's uh, it's a really good show. Uh, Molly? Um, I'll actually be drinking champagne at New York City Ballet. Um, every time they do the art series, um, collaboration with artists, I, I never miss it. In the past, uh, it's been Marcel Zama or JR. They're working with an artist uh, named Jihan Zensirli, who goes under the name um, Geronimo. And she's created an installation filling Lincoln Center with, I think, like 200,000 balloons. Um, the, you know, the deal is you get to see the art and then um, see the ballet. And, and the tickets are reasonable. They're, um, as part of the art series, they're always $30. So um, I'm really excited to see that. I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. this weekend. Uh, I'll be heading to the National Gallery of Art, which I've actually never been to, but it's been, it's a huge one on my bucket list. So I'm really excited to see uh, actually one work, um, Menes the Railway, which I actually wrote about in college, plug for my <laughs> undergraduate paper here. Uh, and it's a, just a fantastic impressionist painting created at, at, at sort of this moment of industrialization in France that really captures kind of the uncertainty, but also the way it fit into daily life there. All right, I think that's a good place to leave it for this week. Thanks so much to our guests for joining me here, Molly and Scott. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, podcast at artsy.net. See you next time. producer this week as always associate editor abigail kane the theme music is by broke for free